You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to episode 138 of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Victor Marks, and joining me is Editor-in-Chief, Neil Hughes. Victor, how are you? You know, it's been a whirlwind of a week. And it really has. Um, we've We've seen these devices launched. We've seen a lot of announcements. We've seen... A lot of people have different concerns about them and trying to figure out which is the device for them uh, and trying to understand how they're different, how they're going to work, and and really what's what's both price point and, and features that people need. Right. And one of the comments that I was reading about in our forums said, you know, that, that it used to be simple. It used to be that you had the four-quadrant matrix, which everyone loves to refer to whenever we talk about product line discussions, and, and that this is not that simplicity kind of thing that, that there, there's an iPhone SE, there's a 6S and a 6S plus, there's the 7 and 7 plus, there's the 8 and 8 plus, and then also there's the 10. So that's five different major categories, each with their own storage divisions among them. Yeah, this, this is a, one of those things where people are complaining about it, and I'm not really sure why. Uh, because I think everything has a legitimate reason to exist on the market as it is. And this is a clear strategy. This is not just some some scattershot approach that Apple is taking. This is a clear strategy that they've been doing to push more in both directions, low end and high end. We've talked about this many times. Keep legacy products on the market or use legacy parts as they did uh, with the new entry-level iPad earlier this year to hit lower price points than they ever have. So this time around, iPhone SE drops at three hundred fifty dollars. Uh, you can get an iPhone success for four hundred fifty dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, you know they're they're at these hundred dollar price increments going forward, and you can see why people would want certain products. So for example, you want a smaller phone, you get the iPhone SE. You want a bigger phone with a headphone jack, you can get an iPhone success. You only want thirty two gigs of storage, you don't need any more than that. Um, you can get an iPhone seven, um, and then you want the latest and greatest um, that's available now. You can get an iPhone eight, and then you really want what's coming next. Then you wait until November and get an iPhone ten. Uh, I think that there's a legitimate case for each product to exist, uh, and that's very important, especially in a point where uh, you know the thousand dollars of the iPhone ten is is kind of controversial in some circles. I think having the phones available at so many prices, including the low three hundred fifty dollar price point for a really great phone that can do AR kit and everything else. Um, is really, really uh, impressive. I think that Apple's phone lineup is more robust and and uh, more consumer-friendly now than it ever has been. And Apple's never been afraid to cannibalize themselves. That was something that Tim Cook said way back in, I want to say, 2011. Right. None of these products, you know, the, the thing that happened in 1996 and 97 when Jobs came in and slashed the, uh, the, the huge number of products that he did to arrive at the Quadrant Matrix. Yeah was that there were a lot of products that they were working on that weren't making any money. Right. Here in this lineup, all of these products are making money. Yeah, it's it's hard for people to understand. Like, they, they try to equate the Mac a lot of times with the iPhone, and they're just not the same. Apple is going to sell like 80 million iPhones in a single quarter this fall. Think about that number. It would take like... 12 years of 15 years of Mac sales to reach that number. You know, like if you're comparing the iPhone, a specific iPhone model to a specific Mac model, you, you know, it's not even close. The, the lowest selling iPhone is still outperforming the Mac. So um, it's the, it's in Apple's best interest to hit all those price points and address all those segments because there are users out there who want 
different, who have different needs for these devices. And the technology has gotten so good and the devices are so mature that there are a lot of users that aren't going to care about certain features or don't want certain things. You know, I had a friend reach out to me the other day and he said, am I crazy for wanting the iPhone 8 more than the iPhone 10? And I said, no, you're not. Because a lot of people are going to want the home button. They don't see the need for the edge to edge screen. They don't want the, the, the cost of it. And that was the genius stroke that Apple did in all this is by introducing these three new phones and keeping around the seven and keep around the six S and keep around the SE, you know, the, the lineup is more robust than ever. And, and it's a good thing for consumers. Now was your friend talking about the eight plus or the eight? He didn't say, I, I didn't ask, but, uh, you know, maybe I, I think that there's some people who just are, are afraid of the loss of the home button. Um, and I think that for that reason, I, I delved into this on the forums with some of our readers the other day, and we were talking about it. Some people are saying, oh, this will be the, the iPhone 8 will be the last iPhone with a home button. And I said, there's no way. There's no way. Because first of all, uh, OLED d- panels cost too much. The edge-to-edge technology um, costs too much. Apple can't replace the entire lineup with it. And they're going to have to introduce new phones with home buttons. And that's not even including the people who will prefer a home button and want to have a home button. You have to look at the way that Apple did with uh, the iPod in the 2000s um, to really see how they addressed different markets and different needs for the products. Um, the iPhone certainly hasn't changed as much in terms of the form factor, but in the last five years, uh, the iPhone has changed a lot. We went from 3.5 inches to 4 inches, then 4 inches to 4.7 and 5.5 inches, and now we're at 5.8 inches. So you have these right, different so the- form factors, different sizes, different different um, designs that accomplish different goals. Now, you said two things there. that the uh, See, I think we're in a, a longer transition to a series of devices that don't have the home button. I think that clearly it makes sense for the SE to live on and for it to be the affordable device that uses the affordable screen that has the home button. Yeah. But, you know, on a longer timeline, the future is a device that doesn't have a home button. I agree. It you know, just, it, it, it's, it's, it's not a fast time. transition like the move to lightning was. No. I think this is a, a two to three year kind of tradi- transition. I think it might even be longer than that. It it could be, but you know the there, there's there's sort of a push pull here, right? Apple wants to make a device that's accessible to everyone at every price point because they want to capture as many of these customers as they can. Right. At the same time, and and it's not just you know we we often and our listeners often think of this in terms of the market that they're listening in. If you're in the U.S. market, you think of it in terms of the U.S. market. But Apple is a worldwide company, and mm-hmm. different countries with different uh, earning levels and spending capabilities and different carrier plans. Yeah. Right. All of these things have impacts. So the SE is the appropriate phone that could probably be a runaway device in one market, where in another, uh, it, it sells less. Right. Right. So there's there's that push pull. And the other push pull is when Apple knows that something is the future, it wants to deliver that future to everyone in a consistent interface and in a consistent way of interacting with something that that trying to accommodate both ways of doing something means that they, they divide themselves a little bit thinner. Mm hmm. That that moving everyone to a future where everything is face ID, where everything is is uh, using these gestures, is their path eventually. 
Right. It's just going to take time, technology-wise, user behavior-wise, acceptance-wise. Right. And where we're at right now in that is that they've migrated us all to a place where all the devices in their lineup have a secure element and have authentication through it. Correct. Top to bottom, including the Mac. So mm-hmm. so we're sort of at the beginning to mid-step of this transition, I would say. Yeah, I think we need to get you know Touch ID on the 12-inch MacBook. Um, whether or not they do it, a touch bar there. Um, and I think, you know, that's really the last key piece of that transition, um, you know, barring well, some Well, or they could. I mean, now, now that we have Face ID, do they have to put a touch bar in place or can they simply load up an IR projector and an IR camera into the screen frame right alongside the EyeSight camera? Well, that was another uh, discussion I had with somebody on the forums yesterday. Uh, we were talking about they were saying that they were they could see Face ID coming to the Mac next, um, and that was not something that I agreed with. I, I see it coming. I mean, if you look at the trajectory of Touch ID, uh, it came to the I- I- iPad first. Uh, it take it took a while for Touch ID to come to the Mac. It just came in 2016, uh, less than a year ago at this point. So, um, I. I I would imagine, especially when going back to talk about how we were talking about sales um, and and the iPhone is just so much bigger than the Mac. The iPad is, you know, about three times the size of the Mac uh, in terms of quarterly sales. So it would make sense for it to come to the iPad first, not only because it shares similarities with the iPhone and design and that sort of thing, uh, but the implementation and stuff. Uh, if you look at the forward facing camera array um, on the Mac, it's never been as as advanced as it is on iOS devices. Um so I you know there were rumors um earlier this year that Apple could as soon as 2018 introduce a complete redesign of the iPad um kind of suggesting that it might get the same edge to edge OLED uh take as the iPhone 10. I don't uh personally think that'll happen for a number of reasons including the limitations on OLED and the pure size or the cost of a right. panel of that you size and cost. Right. Yeah. I mean, you think about like the max you can spend on an iPad right now is like, I think like uh, $1,100, $1,150 maybe on the 12 inch uh, iPad pro 13 inch iPad pro with uh, uh, LTE. Uh, I mean, you're looking at like an entry level cost with a panel that size of OLED of like $1,500. And the question becomes, who other than me, an insane person, would spend $1,500 on an edge-to-edge OLED iPad with uh, Face ID? But, um, you know, I, I I don't think that necessarily that transition is going to come next year, but I think that we get there eventually. Um, and I think that, like you said, it'll, it'll come to the Mac. Um, it'll come to Apple's entire product lineup. And I, I think that, you know, the iPhone 10 is a view of what Apple sees as the future of computing and technology takes time in addition to user acceptance and everything else. Uh, but, you know, we'll, we'll eventually get to a point where, uh, yeah, I, I think the home button will be gone at some point, uh, but I don't see it happening anytime soon. I would say it would take longer than five years. Could be. And and that would just be, I mean, first of all, the at, at some point, the 6S is going out of the product line. Right, that's that's not going to be maintained and released again next year. I mean, the, SE, the 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 headphone jack might keep it around longer in the lineup than you think. You're you're right, and it could do that based on government and institutional sales. Right, where where with we saw with the iPad too, you have to keep the model around longer to support the contracts. Well, not just the iPad too. I mean, don't forget, it wasn't until last uh, July, I believe it was, Apple was still selling 
a 13 inch MacBook Pro with spinning disk drive. Think about that, right? That thing, right. that and was that, the non retina. That too could be for institutional or government sales. Right. So, when, well, when, I mean, for whatever it's for, I mean, there's still a market for legacy technology like that. People are very resistant to change. And if Apple is going to hold around a Mac for that long, I think they're going to keep around an iPhone for that long. Now, whether it becomes an upgraded SE and they say, if you want a headphone jack, get this model, or they keep, keep around the success, or maybe even give it, you know, a A10 processor next year to keep it kind of somewhat up to date or something. I would not be surprised if uh, they have a low end 4.7 inch model with a headphone jack uh, for either emerging markets or government or, or education or whatever you want to call it. Well, so when you have a government contract, the reason why I keep saying that is this. When you have a a government or an education contract, the contract tends to specify that you have to be able to provide service parts for, service for, and the device itself for so many number of years, whether that's three years or five years, um, that you have to provide, and that the device has to be both serviceable with parts so that they can't simply say, sorry, we don't have those parts anymore. It also means that... If they replace it, it has to be replaced with one that is equivalent in form and function. So if you have an iPhone 6 and you get it replaced, it has to be with one, a device that has the same functionality, including the headphone jack, and will fit whatever case or docking accessory or sled that they may have for it. And, and I think that critics that would see and hear us talk about this and say, oh, that shows that Apple made a mistake by ditching the home headphone jack. No, it doesn't. No, it just it, means that they sold, you know, so many number of, of successes to governments. And we know that they do that, right? There was the, because that came out. Yeah, yeah. Most, most apparently with the San Bernardino shooting where the phone belonged to the county. And this is also evidence of Apple saying that its products from two, three years ago are still good enough to sell. You know, you hear these critics who say, oh, you know, I don't need to upgrade my iPhone every year. It's Why do we have to put out a new iPhone every year? Is it really necessary? Well, here is Apple really standing by its products over the course of years and saying that this is still something that we're willing to stand by and sell to new customers. And we think that it addresses a different market. So my kids discuss this with me all the time. I, I have children that are fascinated by what the life cycle is of product support. Don't ask either. That's, that's what I've done raising these kids. <laughs> but, you know, the it, it came up because my wife has an iPhone 5. And as right. we all know, iPhone 5 is 32-bit and has gone unsupported for iOS 11. So right. it has just now ended of life, ended useful life, let's say, and in terms of product support. And so they, they want to know, you know, what's going to go end of life next? What's going to be unsupported next? How long was the iPhone 5 supported for? And we got, I want to say, a good, uh, what, four years out of that device? Is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. And you would be hard-pressed to find any other device made by any other manufacturer in the mobile space that provides software updates for that length of time. And the good news is, by these devices sticking around and as part of the lineup, it means that support is going to be extended even further for these devices. Because... You look at now, uh, you know, the entry-level iPad coming out with the A9 chip, and they're probably going to sell it for at least two years before they upgrade it, and they'll probably support it for at least two years after that. You know, look at the life cycle of the iPad 2. Well, um, but that's that's good news for other A9 devices like the iPhone Exactly, C. exactly. It extends over to all these other devices. You know, if you have the... It doesn't uh, point to good things for my iPhone 6 with the A8 chip, but, you know... No, it does not. The the (laughs) A8 is being left behind now because of ARKit and stuff like that. But, yeah, I mean, 
you you look at these legacy devices and they still work very well and many of them are being still updated and i think that that is going to continue to extend because it's not necessarily at the the level of innovation has slowed but the capabilities have become so strong that even a device from two three years ago four years ago uh, is still a pretty powerful and capable device absolutely now Face ID, we touched on briefly here. Uh, mm-hmm. we've, we've talked about it on the show in the past. And when we had Mike Worthley on, Mike posited that financial institutions were really on board with Touch ID and that he was, he was not positive that they would be as on board with Face ID. You've had some concerns about Face ID also in terms of authentication and, and uh, privacy and, and things like that. So having all of that in mind, now that we've seen it announced. Mm-hmm. Has Apple addressed your concerns? I, I think they've adequately addressed Mike's in terms of, of uh, Apple Pay, but have they addressed yours? I, I think so. I, I was not, <laughs> despite what people listening and people in the comments think, you know, my, my contrarian uh, take on it was just meant for the purposes of discussion. Uh, it was never meant to... Uh, I'm not I'm not an Apple cheerleader or or anything like that. You know, we try to cover the company as objectively um, as we can. We, we are an independent source on Apple. And so I think it's healthy to go into an announcement like that with some level of skepticism because it's the onus is on Apple to justify why they would get rid of a proven technology like Touch ID. You know, I heard from some friends of mine and read some comments, of course, uh, people who just don't like the fact that, you know, their use cases uh, for logging into their phone are not going to work as well with Face ID as they do Touch ID. Uh, I, I was talking to a woman the other day who was saying- the pocket, right? Uh, yeah, I was talking to a woman the other day who was saying that she's in meetings a lot and she will discreetly under a table uh, unlock her phone with her finger and then just kind of peek down on the table, but she never really looks at the camera. And so being in a position to have to hold it up to your face at the right angle and stuff would not be convenient for her to discreetly log into her phone, in which case she could just enter her passcode. Um, yeah, you know, but what this woman really needs is an Apple Watch. Well, yeah, depending on what you're looking to do. I mean, I guess if you're checking your Instagram, it might not be as, as good on your watch. But fair. I mean, there's going to be use cases like that no matter what. And we knew that going into it. You know, if you're if you're skiing and wearing a ski mask yes you cannot log in with face id but you know what you're also wearing gloves so you can't log in with touch id so boohoo too bad um there are going to be situations where touch id would work better than face id i think that overall face id is going to be more convenient than touch id and more reliable uh you know i always am trying to unlock my phone when i'm leaving the gym and my hands are sweaty and then it doesn't work and then i get enter my passcode and because i have a complex passcode it takes a while and it's like that's a that's a pain that annoys me and so i think for the the key with security is it has to be convenient enough and good enough this is not some fort knox level of security this is consumer level stuff and i think that for the vast majority of people who use an iphone they're going to prefer face id over touch id and and you and i have talked about this before there's even a, a unnecessary learning curve with touch id with people who press the home button and they and you got to break it through their head. It's like don't press the home button. Just lay your finger on it. Just lay your finger on it. And you know they even have when you do the setup, Apple has to say no, don't press the home button, and they have to disable the functionality of the home button while you set it up to teach people how to do that. That learning curve is gone with Face ID. It makes it easier. Of course, now you have a learning curve of how to return to the home screen. So that one step forward, one step back in some respect. Well, but- and 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 I want to say the the multitasking screen is the interesting one where you you start swiping up and then pause. Right. That's that's yeah. the one that seemed a little awkward to me. 
Yeah, Apple has done some stuff to address it. You know, the the bar that you have to slide up uh, is always going to be there um, at the, the bottom uh, of the home screen. Hill. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've also brought a, a Mac-like feature over for multitasking where you can swipe it left and right, um, and it'll quick switch between full screen apps on there. Um, I think that they they did a pretty good job of it. I'm not too concerned about the ditching of the home button. Um, and I'm not too concerned about Face ID, but I think a lot of people will be. Um, and that's why the iPhone ex- exists. Now, Senator Al Franken has, has sent a message to Tim Cook asking him to address concerns about Face ID's impact on consumer privacy and security. Yeah. Franken's on the Senate Judiciary Committee on Privacy, Technology, and Law. And he had a number of questions about the implementation of Face ID. Particularly the how the information is created, how its data structure is handled, and what assurances are being given about protection of user data. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get too political here. I'll just say that Al Franken is doing his job, and I don't have a problem with him questioning any new technology. As a politician, I wouldn't want him to just blindly trust a company. I realize that people listening to this are Apple fans, and they'll go, oh, it has a secure enclave and blah, 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 blah. But he is a U.S. senator, an elected official who's job it is, is to ensure the uh, privacy and safety of his constituents and citizens of the United States. And so it's logical for him to want to get some answers on that. And just because somebody asks questions doesn't mean that they're not going to be satisfied by the answers. I don't think that anybody needs to read into this too much. Al Franken did the exact same thing when Touch ID came out, and he's done it with every other new technology that's been announced. Whenever Amazon has a new Echo out, whenever um, Google uh, launches a new phone with new capabilities, um, he always puts out a press release and and we, we get a copy of it. And he asks these companies to explain their technology and to uh, explain how they are protecting user privacy. And I think it's a good thing that somebody like him is out there and keeping an eye on companies regardless of who they are. Well, and that's exactly the reaction that he wants you to have. It also makes him, uh, it gives him a good opportunity to send home a constituent letter talking about how great he's doing on following up on these kinds of things. Well, that, well that's politics, yeah. Yeah. The the part that I wanted to get to was that he, he did ask Tim Cook how Apple will respond to law enforcement requests to access face print data or the face ID system itself, which, which of course was a big debate last year. Now, what we do know is that in iOS 11, if you press the um, the side button five times, that it uh, disables Touch ID or Face ID, yeah, requiring the passcode to be entered. Yeah. And have you, have you tried that out, Neil? I, I mean, I, I haven't. I nobody's tried to rob me lately. So, well, that you know of, that I know of. I just so it's it's nice to have. I, I don't see myself. You when know, I, it's, when I press the. When I press that button five times, it shows the slide to power off medical ID, emergency SOS, and cancel buttons. And if I just say cancel at that moment and try and press the home to unlock, touch ID is disabled. It requires the uh, the passcode at that point. Yeah. Yeah, it's a nice it, – so, it, it's one tips. of those things you hope you never have to use, like the medical emergency thing and all that. But uh, it's not like it hurts anybody by including it. So, yeah, absolutely. Now – one of the other things that we, we published a quick story on is that the cost of Apple Care Plus has gone up. Right. Uh, so the cost of Apple Care Plus was $129. It is now $149 for the iPhone 6S Plus, the 7 Plus, and the 8 Plus. Um, and for the iPhone 10, Apple Care Plus will now cost $199. 
Am, am I wrong in presuming that it looks like these costs are tied to the screen size? It certainly does look like it, and that would make sense. I think the screen is the most expensive component on these devices. So, And the uh, the non-warrantied screen prepares for the 6 and the SE, the smaller size screens, have gone to 129 up from 99. Mm-hmm. The 6S and 7 have gone up from uh, from 20 to 149. I realize I'm going to jinx it by no, saying uh, this. No, they're up $20 more, rather. I'm, I realize I'm going to jinx it by saying this, but I've never broken an iPhone screen and I've never paid for Apple Care. So in the event that I do break one of my iPhone screens in the in the future, um, the 130 plus a year or per phone, at least, that I have saved uh, will probably, I'll, I'll come out ahead in the end, I think. Yeah. I have I have paid for Apple Care on a number of phones, and I'm, I'm contemplating doing it again. I have always thought about doing it, and, and in many cases gone for it, because even if I don't crack the screen, there's something very nice about in the second year of, of use of the device, because I don't change phones every year, being able to walk in and say, I have Apple Care Plus, uh, my battery life is reduced because I'm in the second year of using the device. Um, could you please take a look at it? And they, they hand me a fresh device without any questions. Yeah, that, that is nice. I did deal with some haggling at the Apple store a couple months ago because my iPhone SE was giving me problems. And then finally, after I continued to have problems, they agreed to take the phone apart to see if there was any damage internally. And I guess their machine that was taking the phone apart somehow ripped the, uh, uh, the battery cable and trying to r- remove the battery. So they just ended up giving me a new phone anyhow. Right. And I've never had to do any of that sort of haggling or hoping that, that something would cause that to work. I just walk in and say, I purchased Apple care plus help me out. And they do. Yeah. Yeah. They were like doing diagnostics and they're saying, Oh, your, your battery looks fine from our tests. And it's like, well, you're not using it and seeing that it just randomly drops from 70% to 20%. So, right. And, and so one of the things that they do is that they have diagnostics that they can pull out of the lightning cable when they, right. they connect yeah, to and their they systems. Me all that. And they show that the battery is, it's not just that whether or not the battery is working properly at its maximum capacity. It's, is the battery degrading over time within our expectations. Yeah, they can actually pull up a chart that shows your use over the last, you know, seven days or whatever, and it shows spikes and, and drops in power and stuff. Right. But, you know, we know that batteries age over time and have less capacity over time and over over charge cycles. And they can say, well, the battery is at this point in its life cycle. We think that it should be about there. If it's about where we think it should be, then that's still normal. My, my lack of need for Apple Care is why I've never used the iPhone upgrade program. Um, but I always tell people if you are buying Apple care, then you should just do the upgrade program because it's just an interest free loan over two years. You know, it's not like you're paying anything extra, but if you're not getting Apple care, then it may not be the best deal because that's $130 tacked on. So yes, well now it's 150, $150 tacked on. There you go. There you are. Um, so we, we, we do this extensively, right? We talked through all of the rumors leading up to this phone. So help me out here. Who was right and who was wrong? Because we've tried to give weight to these along the way and say, you know, we think the ones that come from this analyst tend to be more correct. We think the ones that come from this source are questionable, but we're telling them about you and telling you about them anyway. So, so help me out. Can we evaluate and say and score these a little bit? Yeah, you know, the, the every year the discussion <clears throat> of the rumors builds a little more, and and people get a little more critical of certain sources and. 
we talked a lot on this podcast about how Ming-Chi Kuo is everybody's kind of love him or hate him analyst. Um, and I have repeatedly said that the guy gets more right than anybody else. And I stand by that. And, uh, you know, this year was a little different because of the iOS 11 GM leak that took place last week uh, before the Apple event. Um, we basically knew everything. Um, it broke on a Friday night and I was working until three o'clock in the morning covering all that stuff. But prior to that, uh, most of the stuff that we knew about the iPhone 10 and iPhone 8 was uh, leaked by Ming-Chi Kuo. Now, that is not to say that the guy has a perfect track record. He does not. Far, far from it. Um, he got a few key things wrong. So, you know, we wrote a story kind of running through all the rumors. And of course, it focused on Ming-Chi Kuo. And the reason it focused on him is because he reported the most stuff. And he said uh, the biggest miss that he had, I think, was uh, saying that the iPhone 10 would launch alongside the iPhone 8. And by the way, it takes a lot of concentration for me to not say iPhone X when I read it. I, <laughs> even though I said iPhone... <laughs> you I, you and everyone else. I, I never said OS X. I always said OS 10. But uh, for some reason, iPhone 10 doesn't seem doesn't read as well. Anyhow, uh, I yeah, he said it was going to launch alongside the iPhone 8 uh, on September 22nd, and it is not. It's launching much later. It's launching in November. He also said it was going to come in three colors. There were leaked uh, gold shades that ended up not panning out. Uh, That was probably something circling around the supply chain that Apple decided not to do. Um, He did nail the screen size way before anybody else. I think it was March of 2016. He said it was going to be a 5.8 inch screen. But he did have this weird diversion where for a while he was saying that the screen was going to have a dedicated function area that was a separate OLED panel, not accessible to apps. He was completely wrong on that. Yeah, um, and, and all of the people that draw mock-ups drew that as sort of a dock, exactly as we saw on the iPad, right. which we don't have. Yeah, and he uh, also uh, kind of waffled on whether or not the iPhone 10 would have Touch ID. He was saying that Apple was going to have it in there, and then he said they were trying to, but it wasn't working out, and there were technical challenges. So, I mean, he did get some stuff wrong um, in a big way. I, I the, the miss that I really found the most funny was he said just a couple weeks ago, really, uh, that the Apple Watch Series 3 with cellular may not support voice calls at launch. And his logic for that was that a lot of carriers don't do voice over LTE. And so therefore, wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense to have it on the on the watch. Uh, and then Apple, of course, at this week's event, did a voice call demo with a woman doing stand-up paddleboarding in California. So uh, not, cool. not just any random woman. This was a woman who was on the Apple Watch team. Right. So uh, obviously way wrong on that prediction as well. But uh, if you go down the list, uh, like I said, the 5.8 inch OLED, um, he was the first to report on that. Uh, when rumors of the edge to edge iPhone 10 first started leaking, people were thinking that it was going to supplant the iPhone plus model. Uh, he was the first to say that they would actually be two separate models. He was right on that. Uh, he predicted a thousand dollars starting price back in February of this year. Um, he was the one that said that the dual lens camera would remain exclusive to the iPhone eight plus this year and the 4.7 inch model. Uh, would still have a single lens. He was the first one to say that all the phones would have glass backs. He was the first one to say that all the phones coming out this year would support wireless charging. He was the first one to say that they would have fast charging via the lightning port if you got the USB-C to lightning cable. Um, he also reported the day of the event that Apple did not would not be selling its own wireless chargers at the launch of the devices this year and that it would uh, and that they would not launch until next year. Um, so he by far got the most right. Now, was was he perfect? No. Uh, but he 
had a better battering average than pretty much everybody else out there, despite his misses. And he took a lot more swings than everybody else, too. So, uh, you know, people in the comments will say, oh, he's overrated. I could have guessed this stuff. You're telling me that you would have guessed a 5.8 inch OLED screen back in March of of 2016 and then stood by it for the next year and a half or known that all the phones were going to get wireless charging when it was thinking that that was just a, you know, the, the conventional wisdom was that maybe they would put it in the iPhone 10. You know, the guy got most of it right. Um, outside of that, you know, Apple itself leaked a ton of stuff. The iOS GM uh, iOS 11 GM that came out and the developers, Stephen Trotton Smith and Gil Herme, I'm pronouncing his name wrong. I'm sure Rambo. Guillermo. Guillermo. Guillermo Rambo. Um, <laughs> those guys work their butts off to get, uh, um, uh, all that information that came out within the last week. And even before that, with the HomePod leak, um, the Japanese site, Mac Otakara, um, had some pretty good scoops that nobody else had. Uh, they predicted the later iPhone launch. They said that both the black and white models would have a black bezel on the front. Um, Bloomberg and Mark Gurman there had some decent scoops, but all of them were like later than everybody else. So, you know, they were, they would say, oh yeah, um, it's going to have a stainless steel frame with the uh, glass front and back. And it's like, well, Ming-Chi already reported that like six months earlier. Or, um, you know, face ID is going to replace touch ID. But that was after the rumors had already started saying that. Uh, the biggest things that they had at Bloomberg were software related. Um, they explained that there wouldn't be a virtual home button, that there would be a new gesture to return to the home screen. Um, and also that Apple would not be hiding the notch at the top of the screen. And, th- and those were good scoops that came in the last few weeks. So Bloomberg was pretty reliable, even though that they weren't first. And I didn't really want to pick on anybody else. But I know that uh, uh, John Gruber of Daring Fireball had made a few predictions this year. Um, that were completely off. Uh, he, he thought that the iPhone 10 would be called iPhone X. Uh, that wasn't any sort of inside information, but that was his speculation. He was completely wrong. Um, and then he did have a source that told him the Apple Watch Series 3 would have a whole all new form factor. And aside from that ugly, 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 ugly red dot on the crown, the watch looks exactly the same. So he was I, I wrong. I get a sense that you don't like the red dot of the LTE version. I, I don't understand why they put that on there. I don't know why it exists. I mean, I guess if you're petty enough that you really want people to know that you have an LTE version of the watch, that's fine. But it's like it's on every model. It's on the stainless steel one. It's on the ceramic one. And it's like, okay, who okay. wants this dot? But hold on. There is a huge problem, as both in the ordering of devices, especially from a retailer other than Apple, or buying secondhand, knowing what products you have. And what stops you from putting a red sticker on your Apple Watch first generation? Well, you, you should be able to tell the difference between a red sticker and the one that Apple's put on in manufacturing. I think it's I think it's uglier and sin. I cannot I, I cannot that, believe that they did that. It, look, I trying to explain the difference between a series zero or a first version of the Apple watch and a series one is hard enough, right? Especially when they both look the same, the same is true of, of, you know, you, you're trying to buy an, an Apple watch and you try and figure out is that I'm buying the series one or the series two. And you have to look at the model number to determine it. Yeah. Having something, anything visually that differentiates it becomes helpful. I understand that that's not the one you would have chosen, but it's, <laughs> it's definitely it's so, not. so difficult. And, and it's, all right. Years ago, I placed an order for an iPod Touch, mm-hmm. and I was ordering the third generation iPod Touch because I had a need for the the different processor that was inside it to be able to run applications. Yeah. And I ended up with three second generation iPod Touches because each time I ordered a third generation, I got shipped a second gen yeah. because no one could tell the difference. 
And the same thing is true of the watch. It's really hard to figure out which version you have when they all look identical. I get it. I get the problem. I I get that you don't like the red dot, but Ooh. there's something reassuring about being able to tell very easily which one you're looking at. It is unsightly. Now, I run into the same problem because trying to determine, am I looking at the Series 3 with GPS or am I looking at a Series 2 is going to be just as difficult. Yeah. But it's it's a problem. Well, there is a company that reached out to me a couple of weeks ago that I kept on my radar. I'm going to write an article about this this week, so keep your eye out for it if it isn't already live by the time people listen to this. Um, a company called Watch Dots that's been around since the first uh, Apple Watch came out, and they sell stickers that match the colors of the bands that Apple sells that you stick onto the digital crown and to the side button. And for ten bucks, that, you get that. these little these little decals. And I plan on getting a black dot to put over the stupid, ugly red dot on this watch because I, 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 I love everything about the Apple Watch Series 3. The Apple Watch Series 3 is amazing. I love the fact that it works with Apple Music and it's going to work with third-party apps and give you this connectivity. I don't like the fact that it costs $10 a month with carriers, but um, yeah, everything about it is great. Why, why did they put this red dot on there? It's so ugly. I, I can't begin to tell you why they chose the red dot. Ugh, it's so bad. When that first Look, leaked as part of the iOS... Johnny, so- when Johnny Ive comes out of his cave every six months and sees his shadow, he uh, makes a change to a product, and this was the product you got. I, when the iOS 11 GM <laughs> leaked last week um, and it showed that red dot, I was just trying to think, I'm like, why would they do this? And I was thinking, like, maybe... Maybe it's actually like a, a like a light up thing, and like that's how you know you have a notification, but that you're not you wouldn't be able to look at the digital crown because it's on the side. I was like, I was trying to like come up with a reason for it because it was like there's no way they couldn't do it. There's no way. And not only is it there, it's on every model. Ugh. Okay. Your frustration is frustration that people have felt from design changes from Apple in years past. There were people that were very frustrated at the iOS 7 design changes and the move away from the iOS 6 kind of uh, squamorphic design. Yeah. There are people that are, are very frustrated about the idea of the loss of the headphone jack. There are all kinds of changes, and your frustration mirrors those exactly because you, you don't see a net positive benefit. No. It's just... Ugh. I am excited to check out the new bands, though. I will be getting a Series 3 watch. Um, As I've said on here many times, I love the Apple Watch, and I love the idea of being able to leave my phone behind when I go for a run. Um, You know, Siri being faster and and working anywhere and and, uh, being able to get text messages and phone calls and all that and be connected uh, are all uh, cherries on top. And I'm, I'm very, very excited about... Uh, when I go to the gym, when I go for a run, or just when I go out on the weekends, just sometimes leaving my phone at home. That's going to be, it's going to feel very freeing and that's exciting to me. Yeah. Well, I got 99 problems, but a red dot on my watch ain't one. <laughs> you like the red dot? Uh, it doesn't offend me. All right. Well. There there are far more other things that I can choose to be offended about than a red dot. Really? But I am looking forward to your exclusive review of a black sticker yes. that you're going to put over I, it. I will. I will. So the, the, we have we have never before on Apple Insider reviewed a sticker, to my knowledge. No. No, we have not. Godspeed. <laughs> All right. So tell me about the loss of reachability as a function. Yeah, this was something that um, 
I did a little kind of PSA article on um, that kind of caught on on Twitter and stuff. People talking about it uh, generated some discussion in the comments, and I found it pretty interesting. Um, I really like the iPhone 10. I like a lot about it. But the one thing that drives me nuts about the iPhone 10 is because now that the home button is gone and we swipe up from the bottom of the screen to return to the home screen and multitask, you can no longer swipe up from the bottom of the screen to access Control Center. And it's even more frustrating now that we have iOS 11, which makes Control Center more powerful and customizable than ever. And so for me, uh, on my handy-dandy iPhone SE, I swipe up from the bottom of the screen to do a lot of things, including access the flashlight, adjust the volume, adjust the brightness, do music controls, quickly go into do not disturb mode before I start recording the podcast, put on airplane mode when I get on a flight, put on low power mode if I'm going out for the day now to an iOS 11 that it's on there. Uh, I use, I have a bunch of HomeKit accessories. I use control center to turn off lights and on, in my home on HomeKit all the time. And so that's awesome when you can just swipe up quickly from the bottom of the screen with one hand. The iPhone 10 is designed for two-handed use. And this is evidenced by the fact that because there's no home button uh, and because Apple decided not to program a way to do it, there is no longer reachability. So to give you a little history lesson on why this is important, Apple's first iPhone obviously was 3.5 inches. They expanded to four inches and with the iPhone 5, which your wife still uses. And when the iPhone 5 came out, they had to kind of justify the size, especially when phones that were coming out at the time for a variety of reasons, including the fact that LTE radios consumed too much power, so they had to get more battery in there. Android phones were on much, much, much uh, uh, bigger screens. And so Apple decided not to go as big. And so they put out a commercial explaining why. And Jeff Daniels narrated and it shows the thumb of a user reaching from all four corners of an iPhone 4 and saying, you know, it's it just makes sense. It's the size of the average person's hand. It just works. And so because that was such a part of the marketing campaign for the 5 and later the 5S, when they went with the larger screens for the 6, Apple had to appease those customers that were a fan of the one-handed use and kind of justify their their jump to the bigger screen. So they included a feature on the iPhone 6 and iPhone 6 Plus and has been on every phone since then called reachability. And reachability is basically rather than pressing the home button, you simply rest your thumb on it twice quickly in succession. And what it does is it brings down the screen to half size so that you can reach up and touch, for example, like a back button that might be in the top left corner or something half like height, that. Half height, right? Yeah, half height. And uh, it's so you double press, double tap. I don't know how you would put it. Double. I, you, you double tap. You aren't pressing the button in. You're just double tapping the surface of it, right? Yeah. Double tap the home button without pressing. And then you can do one touch on the screen and it will then automatically expand back to full size. And so that is, you know, you're using your phone one handed for whatever reason. And you, for example, you're browsing the app store and you want to hit the back button in the top left and you can't reach it with one hand. So you double tap on the home button, you press it, and then it goes back to full screen and you're good. Well, because there's no home button on the iPhone 10, there is no reachability anymore. And Apple is not the, I mean, unless this changes before the phone ships come November, they have not programmed any way to do this. And if you look at all the videos uh, showing the device being used and accessing these functions, um, uh, they show it being used two-handed. So it's clearly the phone was designed to be used as a two-handed phone. So to bring all that full circle, uh, because Control Center is no longer swiped from the bottom of the screen on the iPhone X, it's actually in the upper right quadrant uh, on the right side of, of the notch. 
Um, so if you want to access notification center, you swipe down from the left side of the notch. And if you want to access control center, you swipe down from the right side of the notch. And so this is going to be a big change to how you use your phone, because for me, I instinctively pick up my phone, swipe up, hit the flashlight or swipe up, hit hit uh, uh, home kit controls. And it's all there on on the control center from the bottom of the screen. Now, maybe you pick up your phone and choke up your hand a little bit higher and then swipe down from the top or whatever. I mean, I, this is, you know. Total first world this problem. This is the equivalent of the nuisance that it was learning how to use natural scrolling, isn't right. it? Right. I think that what happens now is um, you used to uh, currently you pick up your phone and, and you're choking your hand more toward the bottom of the phone, right? So that you can access the thumb, the home button, because that's the most important thing for you to be able to access. Now, maybe with the iPhone 10, you pick it up, but your hand is more toward the middle of it because you don't need to press the bottom of it to unlock. You do need to swipe from the bottom. So it'll be interesting to see how that works. I wonder if maybe um, on the lock screen, at least, Apple doesn't require you to swipe from the very bottom and allows you to swipe from more towards the middle just to quickly pick up your phone and access. I don't, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm just speculating. But um, I could see where the habit becomes picking up your phone, your thumb is more toward the middle of the phone, so now you can swipe down from the top to access control center. And so I, I didn't mean for this story to come across as a, oh, I hate big phones kind of thing, uh, more so just a Apple's design philosophy has changed in a significant way with the iPhone 10. Apple has always gone out of their way to cater to one-handed use. And even in iOS 11, they've introduced a new one-handed keyboard for making it easier to type. But this is an example of where the iPhone 10 design philosophy has changed, and they are no longer making an attempt to cater to those one-handed users. And it'll be interesting so, to see if they do a course correction on that or if things stay the way they are. My, you know, I, I did a very informal uh, anecdotal survey, and and what I found was that among the the small number of people asked, it's a totally totally invalid survey for any purpose of of kind of actual numbers. <laughs> right. But I suspect Apple has real numbers. Is is that more people that I asked triggered reachability accidentally than intentionally. Right. Uh, uh, somebody so in the comments from did that say that. Standpoint, yeah. So, hey, look at that. Someone else said that too. Yeah. And, and I'm not just reporting my own opinion. I did really ask about 10 people, but I, I know totally statistically invalid survey. If that's true and more people accidentally triggered it than intentionally, then it makes sense to move away from it, doesn't it? Perhaps. Um... You know, I, I saw Clearly, just 10 people against 85 million is, is really a big <laughs> unknown, but and plenty of people in the comments were saying that they use reachability all the time. And I was seeing people complain. Um, uh, and I mentioned this in my story. I, I have not personally tested it, but um, I guess it used to be in iOS 10 and earlier with reachability. You could use it to invoke the notification center. But with iOS 11, they've made it so that you cannot swipe down to invoke notification center when using reachability. So. Uh, that's another change away from one-handed use, which is which is somewhat interesting. Uh, whether that gets addressed in the final release of iOS 11 or in a further in an update down the road and was maybe an oversight, I don't know. But there were certainly a lot of people that weighed in the comments saying that they use reachability all the time. Uh, when I was using an iPhone uh, 6S, I did not use reachability. Um, I just uh, would uh, kind of extend my thumb a little further and I could I could make that reach. Um, but it's important to remember because somebody was saying, uh, somebody tweeted us and people were saying in the comments, oh, well, it's the iPhone 10 is about the same size as the iPhone 7 and iPhone 8. Uh, it, you know, it's the, basically the same form factor. Well, you don't reach up and touch the bezel and the, the speaker area on an iPhone 8 or an iPhone 7. You don't reach that far. You only reach as far as the screen goes. 
yes, it's the same size form factor, generally speaking, but the phone screen is much bigger. It goes from 4.7 inches to 5.8 inches. It's bigger than the, than the plus screen size. So you're going to have to reach that much further to get to the edge of the screen to do those gestures. Absolutely. It's, it's going to be a change. That's all we can really say is that there's definitely going to be a change here. And people who use this new device are going to have to get accustomed to it. So are you getting one of the new phones, Victor? Um, I would like one of the new phones. I am very probably not getting one of the new phones. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, because my my uh, expense budget from the cabal that run at the dark headquarters of Apple Insider doesn't necessarily permit it. <laughs> and you know, I just I just can't file that much on an expense report. I'm sure you know how that yeah. works. Um, the other reason is is because I am interested in seeing what comes after iPhone 10. Mm-hmm. And I say that because my observation is that when Apple introduces a new technology, a flagship technology, that the first year it comes out, it's wonderful, it's great, it's well executed, but the second year they refine it. And and a good example of that would be the iPhone 5S that came with Touch ID but did not have the secure element and so it didn't do support Apple Pay. And that the year after we got the iPhone 6, which did. So well, this I can't conceive of what they might improve upon, but clearly they know what to improve upon, right? They've already got they they've already been working on the roadmap for what comes after iPhone 10 for six months for sure. Yeah, I, the rumors say that we're going to get a plus sized iPhone 10 next year, so something more of the form factor of the iPhone 8 Plus, but with mm-hmm. a you know 6.6 inch display or something, right? So and and that makes good sense because the iPhone 10 even though it has the longer screen surface area, it uh, if you rotate it into landscape mode, you don't have the same useful height as you do from an, a plus size device. Right. So partly I'm, I'm, I don't have the budget. Partly I'm waiting for what comes next. And I'm, I'm also interested in what the naming conventions are going to be next because we have eight and 10. So what, what do you, what do you name the devices next? Uh, good question. I don't know. You know, am I am I going to wait around for an iPhone nine when we've already had a ten that's been released? I I don't know. Maybe it's like OS ten, and it just keeps the name for fifteen years. It it could, it very well could. Um, but then that it, it's so weird because you have the iPhone eight. So does that increment, or are they just all iPhone tens? Branding of sub names on products has never been a strong suit for Apple. Especially when things there, well, there there have been examples of this in the past, right? The iPad three, the the fat iPad, was the new iPad mm-hmm. when it was announced, which of I, I course believe, was I, no, always was, going to be a difficult device because no, when the iPad I, it was iPad with Retina display, and then that later that year was the iPad four, which was the next generation iPad with Retina display, I believe. Yes, but but Apple officially did market the iPad three as a new iPad for a while. Well, no, because iPad 3 was the first one with a retina display. So yeah. I think they called it iPad with retina display. At any rate, na- yeah, I agree with you. The whole naming has been a difficult one. iPad Air, so then be- iPad Air 2, but never got an iPad yeah. Air 3, moved on to the iPad Pro. Now we just have a regular iPad that's the size of the first Air, iPad Air, but it's not. It's like, oh, geez. It's it's difficult, isn't it? It really is. And, and clearly it's a challenge for them because they have as much trouble with it as we do. 
Yeah, and I, I you know, I, I think that they don't think that far ahead. Uh, I think that they're focused more on making the product and, and the naming conventions are kind of, you can see where the market's going, what's going to make you stand out, what's going to whatever. You know, certainly, uh, I think that the fact that Samsung is up to the number eight on their phones may contribute to why we have iPhone 8 and iPhone 10 this year. Um, I, I think that I'm sure Apple's internal, you know, marketing research teams can look into that stuff and see how much it matters with consumers. It doesn't matter to me, but I, I'm sure there's a lot of people that, that, that fall for those little tricks. And so Mm -hmm. it's good business sense to follow along and do those kind of things. Definitely. Now I want to talk about something that I know is close to your heart. Yes. Charging. (laughs) Now you have run a number of articles on the, uh, the website and also talked here on the podcast about charging speeds and how to charge an iPad Pro, for example, at a faster charge rate, you have to buy a separate brick and a separate cable to be able to do it. Tell me about quick charging the iPhone 8 and the iPhone 10. Yeah, the uh, the sins of the father uh, have been passed on to the the from the iPad to the iPhone now. I just uh, want to the, say that sigh was palpable. I could really uh, tell the the pain that you feel there. You know, I, I sympathize with Apple um, in some respects on this because they're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. Um, they don't want to put out new lightning cables and power bricks. Uh, that run on old USB full-size ports because they have the new USB-C connector that they're pushing on the Mac. However, they don't want to ship USB-C connectors with the iPhone because then people that have legacy USB port computers, which is the vast majority of people buying iPhones, wouldn't be able to plug it into their computer. And they don't want to ship it with multiple cables in the box. So what do you do? There is no good answer, um, but unfortunately... For Apple, they, they you know their choice is a bad one no matter what. I, I don't know what they would do to fix it, but the iPhone 8 and iPhone 10 will both ship with basically the same five watt power adapter and with a regular USB A full size USB port to Lightning connector. The phones will support USB three quick charge capabilities, which will give you 50% juice in your iPhone in 30 minutes, which is awesome. The problem with that is you have to go and buy a $20 or $30 USB-C to lightning cable, and you have to buy a USB-C power brick with the appropriate wattage. So if you were to buy official Apple products, the cheapest one you can get is the 29-watt brick for the 12-inch MacBook. And so now you're looking at another $70 tacked onto your $1,000 phone just to get the quick charge capability. Now... The fact that they do this with the iPhone 8, I understand. That's their consumer-focused product, whatever. But with the iPhone 10, which is geared toward premium users and high-end users, and even more so with the iPad Pro, which is designed as a computer replacement, I find this to be highly unacceptable. And I think it I don't think that Apple's doing it as a cheapskate move, but it comes across as a cheapskate move. It comes across as nickel and diming that you have to spend another $70 to get fast charge capabilities, which is something that most people want. You know, this is something where um, I I think that most consumers say, if you ask them what's the number one problem with their iPhone, they're going to say battery life. I want the battery to to last longer. One way of addressing that, since we can't magically invent better batteries, 
is to make it charge more quickly. You know, you have it charging in the car while you're driving, you charge it at your desk while you're working, you come home from the gym and take a shower and pop it on there and get it, get a quick charge on it. Uh, having it juice up more quickly is, is a good thing. Um, and I think it should ship in the box with that. Now, whether a better solution would be to make a full size USB three, uh, to lightning cable with a more powerful power brick in, in the box. I don't know, but, uh, whatever they're doing right now is not, not smart. Okay. Wireless charging. Wireless charging is interesting. Um, I didn't think we got a tip before uh, Apple's event, which ended up being 100% right from an anonymous source saying that Apple wasn't going to ship their charger until 2018. Um, And uh, in the interim, Belkin and Mophie were going to step up to the plate with their own accessories. Um, That that was that was accurate. Um, Apple's own charging solution is going to be interesting as well. I think it's going to have a mix of like NFC in there to allow it because the the Qi uh, uh, open standard that they're using um, only allows one device to charge at a time. Uh, Apple is going to kind of address that on their air power charging pad with some NFC technology. The devices are going to talk to one another. It's only going to work with newer devices. Um, so um, I, I think that wireless charging is good. It's not something I'm personally excited in about. Uh, I, the, the thing I find more exciting about wireless charging is because I use a Mophie battery case with my phone and it occupies the lightning port. And especially if you have an iPhone seven that uh, you want to use wired headphones with it. Now the lightning port is occupied by a battery case. I'm excited by the prospect of snap on wireless uh, battery cases that leave the lightning port open so that you can plug in your headphones and use them. Right. So you want a, a battery case that charges by Qi and also charges the phone by Qi. Well, I don't care if the headphone open. I, I don't care if it charges by Qi. I don't know that I would. I, I don't know that I would be interested in buying a wireless charging pad. But I'm saying, just connecting it to the phone without occupying the lightning port and being able to recharge the phone without covering that port would be very nice. What I can tell you is that wireless charging is incredibly convenient. That when I've used it, I have liked it a lot. It's it's uh, really something brilliant. Now there's there's sort of an intermediate step here where we've seen this tried to transition for years. Uh, there have been charging ports that have been built into tables at Starbucks for for trial Starbuckses. There have been movements from IKEA where IKEA has made furniture that allows you to build the charging puck for wireless charging directly into the the surface of the furniture. Yeah. And I think what happens is that that becomes more of a thing that we see in the market once the standard really takes hold. Yeah, I see that. In the meantime, there's there are products like the Belkin Boost Up and uh, Mophie's Force Charge product, char- or rather Charge Force. And, and those charging pa- bases don't cost very much in the scheme of things. To get a, a Charge Force wireless charging base from Mophie is 40 bucks. Yeah. This is something very cool. Uh, I, I can't tell you how great it is. You have to experience it for yourself. But the idea that you don't have to physically manipulate the cable into the charge port is good. You just put it down on the base and leave it. Yeah, that's and, cool. I, I don't see myself laying a charging mat on my desk. I'm kind of limited for desk space as it is. And a dock uh, is a little more convenient in terms of taking well, up less real estate. Good news. There are docks that have backrests with Qi built into them. Yeah, that's cool. I could see myself using something like that. I it's very you know instead of having to aim it and get it right on the dock on the lightning connector sticking up from a dock just sitting it in the dock and having it charge yeah I, so I don't you still see... get the the vertical orientation you like and it's charging 
I don't see myself buying like new furniture or anything like that. Um, well, it is funny that no, but uh, over time, right? People replace furniture. And when you replace furniture over time, will you get one that has it built in? Sure. Why not? My parents bought a Toyota Avalon a couple of years ago that has a wireless charging thing in it. And uh, obviously it doesn't, it didn't work with previous iPhones, but I had checked anyhow to see if one would fit on there. Cause my mom has an iPhone seven plus and the phone's too big to even fit on the wireless charging pad. <laughs> so even if they got an iPhone yeah. eight and it would just wouldn't work. Well, but so here, here's the other thing, right? Toyota has been very late to the game in terms of Apple CarPlay. They have, they've held off and resisted doing it. Right. But in, in the future, when you have a car that comes equipped with wireless CarPlay and a wireless charging mat in mm-hmm. the armrest or yeah. in the console, then you have the perfect storm because you just put your phone in because you need a place for your phone to sit anyway, or you leave it in your pocket or your purse, whatever, but you can just sit it there and have it charge and it will wirelessly do CarPlay at that same time. That is a perfect storm. Yeah, no, I think that's a great use case for it. Absolutely. Cool. Well, I'd like to draw this segment to a close. Is there anything you want to use as a parting thought? Um, I'm still not sure which phone I'm I'm going to get. I, I would definitely get an iPhone 8 4.7 inch if it had the dual camera. I've been very envious of the dual camera on the iPhone 7 Plus for last year using my SE. So I'm not interested in the full size of the of the iPhone 8 Plus. So I'm I'm considering the iPhone 10. Um, I want to get it. Um, uh, the 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 combination of the price and, and the giant screen and some other quirks um, have me debating it. I th- but I think that you know if you're not somebody insane like me who likes smaller phones, I think this is a great phone lineup. Um, I don't have a problem with it. I I just I like uh, the I value my uh, pocket space. I suppose so. Uh, I will probably end up getting an iPhone 10, but I don't see the iPhone 8 lineup really appealing to me. Because you want that dual camera and you want to err on the smaller size of device. Right. If they if they put the dual camera on the iPhone 8 this year with the home button and all that, I would, I would have no qualms with the missing headphone jack or anything else. I would, I would totally get the 4.7-inch phone because I want to have that 2x zoom. Right. So what I think happens here is is if it's as you say, right, if, if next year we get the plus-sized device of the iPhone 10, then we end up in a world where... The iPhone 10 has the dual camera. The smaller device has the dual camera as well as the larger device. Right. That's that's where it's going, Neil. So you you should get the iPhone 10. You should spend that money. I that uh, probably what I'm going to end up doing um, if I can get one. We'll see how many they can manufacture at launch. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, this has been this segment of the Apple Insider Podcast. Uh, Neil, Nickel, and Dime Hughes, where can we find you on the internet? <laughs> uh, you can read me on Apple Insider, and I'm on Twitter at thisisneil, N-E-I-L. All right. We'll be right back with another segment with Daniel Aaron Dilger. Dan, thanks for coming back. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you, after the announcement on Tuesday, got to go into the hands-on area. Can you tell me a little bit about what it was like? Because my understanding is that when you come down the stairs and then go into the theater, hands-on area is sort of blocked off by a wall. And then when you come out, the wall has somehow retracted. Yeah, you don't see, uh, when, you, when you enter, so when you enter the studio of the theater, you have that, it's been portrayed in a lot of pictures, it's just a huge cylinder of glass with a lid on top of it. Uh, so when you walk in, there is a couple elevators that, that do the twisting, turning <laughs> motion as they come down. But the main way to get down there is there's two stairways that circle uh, either side of the outside of the the ring so there's these two grand stairways that both lead down from the top down to the same place it's the opening of the theater and as you walk down these stairways it looks like it's just sort of a hallway that's opening out into the the theater 
that's still below you. So you come out at the top of the theater and then you walk down into it. So on the way in, you don't get the sense that there's something else there. It looks like there could be a room, like this big uh, round room. But as Cook was finishing the comments, he said, you know, check out our great hands-on theater. And it was actually the, the thing was moving. So it's like this huge uh, wall of kind of stainless steel looking panels that retracts around like a theater of its own. Like this huge periphery of wall that, that goes around. It's like a curtain. It's like a round curtain wall. But it looks like a solid wall when, when you first see it. And then it d- retracts and all of a sudden you come out of the theater and there's this huge round room that's, you know, high ceilings and have these dramatic stairways on either side going up. Uh, so it's a very beautiful location. However, it is a little bit... <laughs> Apple's hands-on areas after their presentations are always beautiful. I mean, they're always like very nicely done. However, it's really difficult to see anything because first of all, there's crowds of people. Second of all, they have like a handful of products on display. You know, they have a limited number of people that can... It's a large number of people fighting over access to a small number of products. Yeah. And there's a lot of fighting because there's some people from all over the world. There's all different kinds of cultures represented in terms of like (laughs) how you, whether you wait in line or whether you just push in front of people. The etiquette for (laughs) how you fight over them is uh, a little bit different than you might expect. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And and these are journalists. So they're used to like fighting to get a mic in and and the story and get a camera in. So you kind of have to do the same thing. Um, But... Yeah, there's, it, it feels like there's not quite enough tables and not quite enough people. And then at the same time, there's another issue, is that you have this beautiful uh, spot that there's these round tables. Everything about it is, is incredibly beautiful. However, the lighting is very uh, harsh lights from the ceiling pointing down. So if you are handling one of these devices that's, you know, chrome and beautiful glass. Reflective, let's say. Yes. And of course, the screen is also going to be reflective from the watch to the phone, uh, it's just covered in dots. And a lot of the pictures that we took, it looks like there's some kind of virus on these products because they're just kept covered in spots. So it is, is difficult to take pictures how's, of things. How is the color cast when you're doing that? Is it, is it also blown out or is it... Uh, is it? That was less of an, a problem. I mean, they're, they're pretty neutral bright lighting. But just the fact that it's so there's so much sheen, it, it's difficult to get reflections. Hmm. Um, so interesting. You'd, you'd think the they would have thought of that, right? I mean, the iPhone is the the most popular camera in the world right now, or at least mobile phone photography is. You'd you'd think that they would uh, have have tested what does an iPhone taking a picture result in in this room? You'd think they also uh, probably use really high end equipment. I mean, I took pictures with my phone primarily. Um, I was using a, a gimbal mount to take pictures of the environment and, and the, the room itself. But um, a lot of it is handheld, and you're trying to hold a device and take pictures of it. It's a little harder than it seems it should you're be. Juggling two things. Of course, it could be worse. You could be juggling a DSLR, right? Right. I've done that before, and that's why I go with a phone because it's just so much simpler. But a lot, of, a lot of people there have you know um, very high-end professional gear cameras, and they have their own lighting that they bring, and they have multiple people holding things and talking to a, a person whose job is just to recite what they've already been told. Mm-hmm. It, it, the whole it sort of environment reminded me of in Japan, you know, there's <clears throat> lookout towers. You go to Tokyo and there's actually a couple of different ones where you go out and you can see out over the vast expanse of Tokyo. And when you try to take pictures of it, the the way that the glass is positioned and the lighting, it's just kind of impossible to take good pictures. Why are the towers that they designed impossible to get a picture out of? That's a difficult, well, because the 
people doing the architecture aren't the people making the photos. Well, perhaps. Uh, they're redoing <laughs> the, the Space Needle in Seattle. And Are they really? I, I think that's, yeah, it's a privately owned structure. And they're going to close it down and, and take out all the walls. I actually haven't, I've been there several times to the ground and seen it, but I haven't paid the premium to go to the top. Uh, I, but, I, have, I have eaten in the restaurant at the top. Yeah, a long time ago I ate in the restaurant. It's, it's kind of... In fact, when I, when I try to remember my experiences in Space Needle, it reminds me of the Fernsehturm term in Germany, in Berlin, which is also kind of the same thing. If, if It is quite difficult to make walls of glass that you can take pictures through without any sort of um, sheen or reflection or anything. But yeah. Yeah, The funny thing about the Space Needle was I was driving around in Seattle, and I was driving through these neighborhoods that looked you know, kind of, I would say they weren't run down per se, but they certainly weren't newly freshened up. And all of a sudden, there over the rooftop of this this junky looking building, there's the Space Needle. And it hadn't occurred to me at all that that the World's Fair, where the World's Fair had taken place, is is now basically this kind of run down, well, uh, aging neighborhood kind of thing. There's there's an area right next to it that feels like 1940s Americana mm-hmm. that, that's really cute. And then there's really fancy areas around Queen Anne. <clears throat> and then between that and downtown, they're just, it's completely being redeveloped. Yeah. There was a lot of just sort of open stuff, but they're, yeah, they're building that huge, you know, big dig project of uh, <laughs> undergrounding the freeway. And yeah. <clears throat> so all that is just um, massively going on. The other view of San, of Seattle is a tower that is where actually, I believe it's the tower. It's like Columbia center or something like that. It's one of the tallest buildings in Seattle. It's then I believe that's where Apple is building a new, or, or they took over a lease of several floors of it. I don't know exactly what they're doing there, but probably trying to recruit people from Amazon and Microsoft. I can't imagine. But it has a tremendous view. And, and if you go to Seattle, that's, you should probably go up to that building and see the view from there because it's better than the Space Needle. Cool, and it never, mind, never, never mind Seattle. Let's go back to Cupertino for a minute. <laughs> okay, okay. Handling the new devices. You know, clear. I, I'm not going to ask you a whole lot about the Apple Watch. Clearly, the Apple Watch is an Apple Watch. Right, it hasn't really changed form factor in any appreciable way. I think it's it's noteworthy that the form factor has not changed. Um, the stainless steel watch feels about the same. I, I couldn't really feel a difference between it and the the Series Zero that I have, the original one, mm. um, and the ceramic new versions. I mean, it's a new color. Uh, the addition is it, it may be actually a little bit heavier, but it, it felt about the same to me when I was handling them. Yeah. So they've put all this new technology in, but it's kind of the same thing. Form factor. I, I think what we really want to talk about are iPhone 8 and 8 Plus and iPhone 10. Pick one. Go ahead and start. Well, let's start with iPhone 8 and 8 Plus. Um, when you look at them, on first glance, you think, oh, this isn't really, this is just a refresh of the 7. Which, of course, last time when the 7 came out, people were saying, oh, yeah, this, the 7 is not a totally different case, so it's super boring and everyone's just going to fall asleep looking at it. Uh, but the 7 had actually a lot of really crazy technology in it. One for Apple, you know, other things that other companies had done some of these things, but you know, the obvious things was that it's water, waterproof or water re- resistant, water to and dust immersed. resistant. I have enjoyed that so much that you don't have to worry about it getting slightly wet. You can also take wa- pictures underwater, and all summer I've been taking pictures. I have to do a story on this of what, uh, how much of an enabling technology it is to be able to go and take pictures where water isn't an issue. That's a really big feature. And other companies have done some waterproofing. Samsung did some waterproofing that, you know, didn't really pass the test. But um, Sony has been doing waterproofing for years. But Apple is bringing it to the mainstream with, I mean, they did last year with iPhone 7. Um, And, of course, the other, you know, huge feature of the 7 was the dual cameras on the back. 
So iPhone 8 does the same kind of things. Um, the the fit and finish has changed. And now I thought the 6 and the 7 were kind of, they were they almost kind of reached like this pinnacle of like basicness. Like if you look at them, they look nice, but there's nothing, they don't look incredible. It isn't like, it kind of reminds me a lot of the iPhone 3G, 3G and 3GS, where the first iPhone was like this really cool, like stainless steel blob. And then the, the first th one was aluminum. The first one looked like, you know, the shiny metal and, um, the mass market 3G and 3GS were plastic. And it was kind of like, okay, so this is what's necessary to get the price down to make it available to everybody. But um, it was just sort of like, you know, it was like an okay design. It's like, yeah, this works. It doesn't have the same kind of like cool feel, like a temperature cool, I mean, being a piece of metal in your hand. It was now this kind of sort of practical plastic. And when iPhone 4 came out, it was like, wow, this is like, what Steve Jobs described as being like the design of a Leica camera and it felt amazing again. And that kind of went on the, you know, the five, which is sort of like fancier and had this kind of gleaming camphered edge. And that didn't change until the six and the six, six plus and seven have all had this kind of same look of just being like super streamlined. It looks like a Airstream trailer or something, you know, it's just kind of beautifully minimal that you put in the case anyway. And they're very nice. And, and the differentiation has been, kind of the finish on the outside. You can get the product red one, you can get the jet black or something like that. With the eight, what's changed is they have a functional glass back that allows you to do um, the wireless charging, but it also gives it a totally different sort of look because you have the, the, the edge that is stainless steel on the, on the 10 and I believe it's aluminum on the eight and eight plus yeah. uh, is chromey you know shiny and the back whether it's white or white or black um and they have the gold version on the eight uh it's because it's behind underneath glass it's kind of like a frosted glass like very shiny it's kind of like jet jet black but covered in glass and then you have color options so it is a very distinctive phone although a lot of that distinctiveness is going to be um obscured if you put it in a typical case so that's the appearance the feeling of it um it's kind of kind of feels the same when you when something looks different it also has even if it feels the same it, it kind of conveys a different feel um i didn't notice that it felt colder because it was glass but um it's it has like an attractiveness to it, it has kind of a flair where the previous models were just sort of like here's a phone that you're going to put in a case yeah should people be concerned about breaking the glass do you think yeah, I think the front and the back are both something that if you drop it hard enough, you're going to crack it. And if you look around, there's a lot of people with cracked screens. I have to keep saying, though, I've had an iPhone now for 10 years, and I have never broke the screen. And I have dropped them many times, sometimes on the corner, sometimes flat on concrete, um, sometimes across you know stone stairs, and I've never broke the screen. But when you've, but, you've done that, you've always had it in a case with a screen protector of some kind, no, yes? No, no? I actually, I've only used a case kind of recently. I've dropped all kinds of naked iPhones all the time on hard services tile a lot and I've never broke the screen. Interesting. But I see a lot of people who have broken screens. I mean like almost all my friends have broken phone screens. So, so clearly Apple it's possible. said this is this is a, you know, more strength than glass. They keep making advances and I mean it's actually their supplier, Corning probably, uh, that's you know developing better and better glass for the front and the back. So uh, you know we don't have any data on how much more resistant it is, but yeah, I would definitely say this is a expensive device you would handle it with care and probably put it in a case although having it in a case also changes the feel of it i have apple's leather case mm. that makes it feel makes it feel thicker 
but it, it makes it feel a lot more secure. And I have actually dropped it in the case, and I'm sure the case has saved it a couple times more recently. But I, I don't even have a nick on it. Yeah, I've I've known people who've been in both camps. I've known people who've said Apple intended this device to be held like this. They they intended to be without a case. You should carry it without a case. Um, the the alternative point of view that I subscribe to is this thing would cost several hundred dollars up to a thousand dollars to replace. I had darn well better protect it with you know the the cheap piece of plastic that I use or whatever it is. It is a lot slimmer. the The whole like six six s seven has been. It feels super slim when you don't have a case on it. It feels nice. However, um, it's also kind of slippery. And unlike previous models, like the 4 and the 5, it doesn't have a flat edge, so you can't can't stand on the edge. And uh, they're actually so big now, you probably wouldn't want to have it standing right. up on end. But And of course, having a round rounded edge makes them feel smaller. So in many cases, the 8 is not changing radically about the case. The, the appearance has changed. Yes. What about the stainless steel part of the iPhone X? Uh, I didn't notice that it. it felt really different. In fact, I, I thought they were both using the same. I was kind of surprised. It's like, wow, they're both stainless steel. Uh, it is a, a different type of construction. Instead of having sort of like an outside shell with everything inside of it that the 6, 6S7 has been, it has this appearance of, like I said, more like the 4, where you have glass panels on either side and then this metal rim. Although the edge of the 8 and 10 is so smooth you can't feel it i mean you can see that there's different materials there's really it's a sandwich but when you feel it 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 feels like a seven it's smooth all the way around you cannot feel the edge that's a big improvement over the six it, and six s construction pretty incredible um yeah like i said you look at it and you can see that it's a sandwich but when you feel it it's it feels like how did they build this because it looks like it's all crafted out of the same thing and especially with the tin you have that feeling of where does the screen end and where does the it's kind of like where does the software end and where does the hardware start? Um, it's just a smooth gradient of integration. The other the other obvious big difference between the 10 and the 88 plus is that the display on the 10 is OLED and it's actually curved in the body of it. So the screen goes right to the edge and it goes right into the corners and surrounds the notch and there's kind of two modes for you're watching video. You can either have it playing video, and because the front of both colors, with the white and the black version of the tin, is black, uh, it kind of hides the notch when you have playing in, in as an inset rectangle where you see every pixel of the movie. And if you double tap on it when you're playing, it expands so that the corners the, the corners of the movie are actually cut off, and also the notch is cut out. But I like that. I've heard a lot of people complaining about it, um, but. When you're watching a movie and you double tap it and it just takes over the whole screen, it's kind of an incredible experience. I mean, it feels like it's just doing as much as it can. And even though there is a you know there is this notch of of the true that that sensor array and the camera and stuff, it kind of becomes invisible. I mean, you note it, but it kind of goes away with video. And of course, it changes depending on what you're watching, I suppose. But the movies that I the movie clips that I saw uh, were a mix of light and dark sort of things and after a couple seconds, I didn't feel like I saw the notch. Now in apps, it's a little bit different because you're looking at a static UI. And I think there's a really big difference. You know, most people that are looking at this notch situation are seeing screen captures or uh, the an image from the um, Xcode emulator, which shows what it would look like in sort of a picture with, you see the whole phone there. But that's a different experience when you actually have the phone 
in your hand. You don't see animations, you don't see uh, transitions and things like that when you're looking at a web page of a static image. And so the experience of using apps where you have the little ears going up and pulling down from the corner, it is a different experience. And I, when I look at some of those pictures, I think, oh yeah, I wouldn't like that if I just saw this picture, but I've handled it. And when you have the phone in your hand and you pull down from the corner, the top right corner, you're pulling it down from the ear where the kind of hardware related sensors are, you know, the signal meter and the battery indicator. You pull down from there and it's very intuitive that that's where control center should be pulled down from because that's the kind of stuff that you're looking for. If you pull it down from any other corner or the middle for the, the left side, you get notifications. So that's so a much control more... Control center is only the upper right, is that it or is it... Yeah, so it distinguishes between whether you start pulling down from the top right ear where, like I said, the battery indicator is. You pull down from that, you get control center and the you know hardware-related settings. If you pull it down from just the top or the, the other corner, you get the typical thing that you get when you pull down from an iOS device is your notifications. So it's a clever way of sort of using those notches to convey some information. What, what do you think about reachability and reachabilities uh, not being present on iPhone ten. So I've been using the 6S Plus and 7 Plus for the last couple of years almost exclusively. And I have very rarely ever used reachability. The screen is huge. You almost have to use two hands to use it. I mean, it's there's a lot of times where, you know, I keep saying I have huge hands and I still cannot reach the top of the screen in many cases. But reachability doesn't seem to, you know, I get the idea and it's it may work for some people, but Typically, when I use reachability, it's accidental. Like, I've bumped the home button too many times, and the screen comes halfway down, and I'm like, how do I get it back up? And I can't flick it back up with my hand, and you have to remember, oh, yeah, you hit it again with your thumb on the home button to get it back to where you wanted it. But it's it's kind of a feature that you can sort of use if you remember to use it, but it's it's not quite as intuitive to use or dismiss as, as I would like, so I don't really use it a lot. So the fact that it's gone... It's kind of like, eh, whatever. I mean, it's not gone on the 8. I believe it's still working on the 8. But on the 10, um, first of all, it's not as wide as the Plus. It is a taller screen. but um, the, the width is pretty the, consistent with the regular, right. you know, the, the, the regular integer, the 7 or the 8 device. Yeah. And for developers, it's actually considered a compact width profile device. So it actually works, even though it has a bigger screen. The screen is actually... It's more pixels than the plus, but the way that it's uh, the orientation and just kind of the device and everything about it, uh, it, it has more of the behavior of a standard iPhone 8. So it, when you rotate the device to landscape, uh, you don't get a landscape home screen or springboard, right? Um, I have to think about that. I don't remember. I don't Do you... remember that happening. Okay. You, you, when you open up mail, for example, you don't get a split screen like you would on the, the plus device, do you? I think when I, the, when I was using it, it was configured. I don't know if it's because the plus you can configure either way. You can have it work sort of like a big um, standard phone, or you can use the pixels to have like a wider keyboard and the additional panels and mail, things like that. Um, I, I don't think that's how the, the 10 works. I think the 10 is more like a standard iPhone, but with just more pixels. And because it's wider, um, it's it behaves a little bit differently. Um, I even with the plus models, I don't usually browse the web in wide mode, just because I don't think if I ever if I ever do that. And a number of times I've thought it would be smart for Apple to use to really make use of the plus 
to be more like a hip top or, you know, like the danger phones where mm-hmm. it's kind of like a, you hold it in sort of a horizontal orientation. You're, you're, you and tend type to use it in landscape. Yeah. Right? But I, Apple's never done that and it's never really caught on. I mean, when you're, when you're browsing the web, even though it gives you a much wider display, it's more like an iPad width, but it, it's not as functional because you don't have as much height. So I don't think there's very many people at all that use even the plus in horizontal mode. And with the 10, when you put it in horizontal mode, you do get a wider browser. But again, it's because it's a little bit narrower than the plus, you're seeing less content. So again, the iPhone is primarily designed to be held vertically. In fact, I usually have vertical lock. You use orientation lock. Right. Because it's actually sort of annoying. Like if you're, you know, lounging on the couch or something, it keeps flipping back and forth. So you just lock it. And I find that there's not a lot of situations where I want to unlock it and use it in wide. So that, you know, my initial impression that the plus phones should be wide doesn't, hasn't really materialized. There are some apps that do wide and, and they work that way, but I think the iPhone 10 shows that Apple's intent is a, like I just wrote about, they're getting rid of the home button on purpose mm-hmm. and they've spent a lot of time thinking about it. It isn't just like, Hey, let's change things arbitrarily. It's this is what we've been working on of how to get rid of the home button. And yeah, how do we know, we've, we've been speculating on this podcast for the past three years about what it would be to get rid of the home button. Right. And they've been thinking about it for at least that long. And the home button is really a, a defining. It was the definition of the original phone. It was like a way to go between apps. And then it kept layering on more and more stuff. You know, Touch ID a few years ago uh, changed it dramatically. And then, of course, Apple Pay. And um, there are some accessibility things that are attached to the button that is also a problem for some people. Some people don't have the motor skills to hit the button. Um, was it Todd Stablefield that gave the presentation at WWDC? He was saying mm-hmm. how wonderful it was to see Siri. You know, he's a paraplegic. And how wonderful it was to see the voice recognition taking off and then hitting the sudden realization that, oh, man, it still means you have to hit a button to use it. Um, but Apple's kind of worked around that with Hey Siri and having other devices that you can invoke what the home button does in a different way for, if you, for people who have motor issues that a button doesn't work for them. So I don't think that's a problem for accessibility people. We'll have to talk to some people that have that as their first experience. But um, there's... It, it just seems like such an essential definition of the iPhone. In fact, when you look on Apple's website, like I took that little graphic of how Apple depicts the various different iPhone models. iPhone has been this rectangle with a rectangle inside of it and a circle with a home button. And that is what iPhone means on a kind of iconic level. And with iPhone X, that is all gone. Or iPhone 10, <laughs> that's gone to where it's now a rectangle with a slight notch at the top. And that's the new definition of, of what an iPhone is. Absolutely. So... How would you say that your opinions have changed since um, since you saw it a couple days ago? You've had some time to think about it, sort of digest your impressions. What do, what do you think? Um, has have you you reconsidered any of your initial impressions, or or what have you arrived at? Well, thinking about the amount of work when you see a new product, whether it's from Apple or anybody else, I mean, when you see a new product, you start judging the things that you think are missing, or you, you realize the things that are obviously different. And there's a lot of things that you don't realize how much effort went into building that or the desi- decisions behind it. And giving some thought to, to how much effort and, and really what a big deal it is for iPhone X to not just move to a different, uh, slightly different, um, taller, narrower display that, with less of a margin around the outsides, the bezel, and losing the home button, but 
there's really a rethinking of everything about how the phone works. And there's a tremendous amount of effort that's been put into that and a lot of thought. And so having been, been writing about these things and, and giving it some extra kind of rumination time to think, uh, it's kind of a new appreciation of how much thought has gone into a lot of these details. And there are some things that are still remaining. For example, web pages and apps, how do they use the full screen of the phone? Um, I don't think there's a lot of apps that are going to be bothered by losing corners, but that is potentially a thing. And also having a notch. If, if, you're, if your app assumes that text can go to both ends of the thing, of, of the screen, when you're in the wide orientation, you have to think about, well, how do I do that? Does my app only use the safe area in the middle? Or do I make some extra use of the, you know, so it's not a, a something that is going to look terrible, I don't think, but um, it's definitely something for developers to think about in terms of how they want their app to be seen. And really, when you when you take advantage of the the ears on one side and around the notch in novel ways, you can come up with things that, you know, make a lot of sense and are distinctive and make your, your app feel modern and um, up to date. So what do you think people should know? What do you think, what's the question that people should ask that they don't know to ask right now about these new devices? And how would you answer it? What's the question that they don't know to ask? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, people are still people are still trying to figure out, do they like the notch? Do they not like the notch? Are they going to miss the home button? What should they really buy? And, and I see people waffling between buying an iPhone 10 or buying an iPhone 8, or even in some cases saying, you know what, forget all of this, I'm just going to buy it at 7 now that the price has dropped. So what's your, your feeling? What should people be aware of that, that they might not have picked up on? Well, first of all, that those things are not new. We've always had people looking at the latest iPhone that's released and, and saying, oh, do I need these features? Do I want to pay the premium for the latest things that Apple can come up with? Or do I want to take advantage of the fact that last year's phone is now cheaper? Or do I want to take advantage of the fact that I can get, you know, a refurbished phone or, you know, somebody's hand-me-down for much less? So I think the real issue for most people is how how fancy do they want to be? And for a lot of iPhone users, you know, if, if you don't want to be fancy, maybe you're not using an iPhone. But for... And it's, it's kind of incredible because other makers don't have this situation. The majority, every year, the majority of the phones that Apple sold were its best. And that happened even, you know, there was some talk when the iPhone 6 or the iPhone 5S and 5C were, were outlined together that, you know, people were kind of gravitating towards cheaper phones and the 5C was going to placate the masses where the 5S was going to be just for people who thought a 64-bit chip was important. And that turned out to be a false assumption uh, for the public. And even Apple, um, it certainly knew that the 5S was going to be a big seller, but it, that the product mix was a little different than expected. It was Apple sold more of the, the fanciest model that it had. And part of that was for Touch ID. And I think coming into the 10, I think a lot of people, although the 10 is far more expensive than a phone has ever been before for an entry-level phone and it you know it's a thousand dollars and then it goes up if you want more more storage so it is a pretty pretty high pricing tier that some people are just not going to you know i don't have the money to do that uh but the other thing is people pay so much money for data service that if you're paying you know close to a hundred dollars a month for data service you're paying more for service than you are for a phone every year so even a thousand dollar phone is you know it's 80 something dollars a month or it's a couple dollars a day so there's a lot of people that don't have very much money that drink more booze or coffee or cigarettes than $2 a day. So I don't think it's something that's out of the reach of people who really want it. And the, a phone is a little bit different than other fancy things like a stereo or, a you know, other things that have been sort of 
luxurious electronics or you know personal possessions in the past, and that we use our phones all the time. They are essential for not only connecting with other people, but accessing information. And because you use it all the time, it's, you know, one of the big things for that has been the, the key success for Apple is that phones are so essential that people are willing to pay more than they've paid for other things in the past. You know, I think back when I was a kid, you know, getting a Sony Discman or something was considered sort of a luxurious purchase. And it was, you know, a few hundred dollars. When the iPad or iPod first came out, it was, you know, this is sort of a fancy thing that you're listening to music. But because you're experiencing it on a regular basis, it was like, yeah, this is something that I want to spend money on because it makes me happy all the time. And phone is just like that beyond because A, it's how you connect with people. It, um, it sets you apart in terms of kind of showing what you like. You know, it's, it's kind of thing when people, when you text somebody and they have a green bubble, you think, oh, this person doesn't care about technology. <laughs> this, this person has a basic phone. Uh, this person got sold a Samsung iPhone. <laughs> yeah. When somebody pulls out a phone and it's like some wacky Android model, you think, I don't know what you think, but well, you, think, you, know, it's, you think you could have bought get, an iPhone for the amount of money you bought that for, but, but it's okay well, to be you know, different. I, I get these, uh, I get advertisements in my email all the time, right? I'm, I'm sure that tons of people do get these kinds of messages. And one of them this morning came with the subject line that, that the iPhone was too expensive and they were offering, like you say, some, some absurd sort of unusual Android phone. And I, uh, I think I deleted the email promptly, but it was, it was very much that, that kind of a pitch. I think it's not only that people are willing to pay more for a phone because you use it all the time and it's so integral to your experience, but also the cost of phones are more obscured, certainly in the United States where there's kind of been history of carrier subsidized phones, but also um, just in the fact that you can now uh, in a, a variety of territories do this upgrade program where it's basically like leasing a phone. And so it becomes sort of a fixed expense instead of a huge one-time splurge and so unless you're the kind of person that can't manage to hold on to a phone without breaking or losing it every three months, it's not a huge expense to get this like super expensive iPhone 10. Um, and one of, one of my favorite analysts, um, I quoted him in the article at the end, he just tweeted out saying how Apple suppliers appear to be targeting 40 to 50 million iPhone 10 to a supply for people to buy in the second half of 2017. And I ask, is this you mean like the second half of fiscal 2017 ending in like March? <laughs> He's like, no, the end of this year. If Apple sells anywhere close to 40 million phones, that means half the iPhones that they sell this, this winter are going to be iPhone 10. That is incredible. It's already, I already keep repeating this idea that it's incredible that Apple's average selling price for iPhones is around $700. I mean, it's been consistently above $650 for a long time. And now they're jumping, I mean, jumping to $1,000, that's a pretty big price jump. And they're doing it with pretty impressive technology. I mean, this face unlock and all the, the cool things you can do with a depth sensor in the front, that is incredible. And other companies have, you know, tried to do that before. Uh, PrimeSense itself was selling a peripheral that you'd attach to a, a laptop to the, um, I can't think of the brand name for it, but there's a depth sensor that uses the same kind of technology. It's kind of like the Kinect for Xbox video games. Uh, and Google had its own version for Tango that was kind of a sort of experimental thing that, that uh, you could either plug in the back of a developer tablet or there's a couple tablets like I think Lenovo came out with one last fall or last winter that had 
the structure sensor built into it. But it was all very beta. If you listen to the reviews, it was just sort of like this half-baked sort of, you know, here's kind of some potential because that's what Google does. They come out with stuff and they say, here's a sort of platform that we've kind of finished and we want you to show us what you're going to do with it. Apple's a little bit different in that everything they do is also a platform and they want third parties to take it and run with it. But they come out with their own very practical application of that technology. And for iPhone 10 and the structure sensor, the primary obvious thing is face unlock, which people are going to be using all the time. That has to work. If it doesn't work well, people are, you know, there's, there's going to be a problem. Um, and additionally, there's a lot of things that iOS can do with a um, structure sensor. You can tell if you're looking at the phone or if it's okay to shut off the screen because it can look at your face and say, hey, are you looking at me? It's okay. Okay. There's a little bit of weirdness that people have in terms of face unlock and they're like thinking, oh, I don't want this thing looking at me all the time, looking at my face and should I feel self-conscious? It's like, folks, it's the machine. <laughs> It's like when you go into the toilet and there's like a sensor behind the toilet that's like checking out if you're finished or not and it's like going to flush the toilet for you. It's a not something you have to be self-conscious about because it is a machine. <laughs> it's not sending pictures of you up to, you know, the main office or putting them on the cloud for someone to exploit. It's something that we've accepted for several years now that it's handy to have a way for us not to have to handle the, the fixtures in a public bathroom. And it's really not that much of a stretch to say, here's one on my phone that is also, because it comes from Apple, we know that it's not sending stuff up to the cloud or analyzing stuff and selling our profile to sell better advertisements. It's being used to unlock our phone. And the customer is us, and that's what we're paying for it. We're paying a premium for it. But it's not only really handy for face unlock, but it also does other cool features and enables things like portrait mode selfies, where you can dynamically create a depth map of your pictures and group shots when they're pointed at you. And you can do after the fact lighting shots and third parties will also be able to tap into this depth API to do really cool things. And you know, the most obvious thing was uh, Snapchat. Right now, kids love Snapchat and they love kind of the simple, you know, they're kind of sophisticated filters, but being able to augment dog ears on you or something, I kind of hate that. But the, with a structure sensor, yeah, but you're also you get not so 12. much it's not just people who are 12. It's young adults. <laughs> it's like everyone's picture on the internet now has those stupid oh, dog ears. Oh, <laughs> goodness. But people like that. And I think a big part of it is like we mentioned regarding FaceTime is that it's sort of, it's not anonymizing, but it's, um, it takes away some of the self-consciousness because it can like, you know, beautify your face and, you know, hide elements of your hair isn't perfect. It sort of kind of blurs it out and puts a crown of flowers on it or something like that. And that's why it appeals to kids. And that taken on a whole new level, the fact that you can, on an iPhone 10, you have the technology to put a skin-tight mask on that's like really close to your face. And it's not just sort of an effect, but it's like a, an augmentation of your reality and how you present yourself. That's, that's a simple, obvious example. There's going to be so much more that developers come up with in using that depth sensor to do really cool things. And now you can do it in both directions. Um, the the augmented reality stuff that they shut off, um, it's, it's a whole new depth, literally, of the iOS APIs. So developers have been doing all kinds of cool stuff on just a you know 2D bitmap of a display. Now you can incorporate, you can mix interactive graphics with what the camera is actually seeing. And you have, you're not just putting, you're not just kind of genlocking graphics and video together, but the camera understands the depth. It understands what's out there. And so you can have realistic 
lighting effects, depending on how bright the scene is. And you can have an interaction between services, like with ARKit games, where you have a whole kind of video game that's sort of unfurling in 3D, virtually sort of created on top of a table, where characters kind of fall off the side of it kind of thing. And it's a really new world of mixing the reality world of the camera with the constructed world of graphics that we're already pretty good at. So there's going to be some really cool stuff that comes out of this. Cool. Well, thank you so much for, for making time to speak with us again. We're going to look for that really cool stuff coming soon. Where can we find you on the internet? I'm writing for Apple Insider. Um, I'm writing up a new thing on the they are kit uh, app for iPad that they built for exclusively for the, the new visitor center that's coming online next to Apple Park. So if you go to California, I'll have to try this thing out. But I got some pictures. It was kind of difficult to take, but um, I got some pictures of how it works. It's really cool, kind of a, a sense of what AR can do in the real world. Um, but Apple Insider, of course, and then also I'm on Twitter at Daniel Aaron, E-R-A-N. Yeah, we're on these podcasts occasionally. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to go to iTunes and leave us a positive review. We always like hearing from you, and you can tweet me at vmarks or send us an email. We love getting listener questions. Come back, join us next week. We'll have more. This has been another episode of the Apple Insider Podcast. <laughs>